When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. As far God's holy word, brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the first things that we learn in the school of Christ is the error of assuming that numbers equal validity, or numbers equal credibility. And this, of course, could work both ways. Uh, if a ministry is able to draw a lot of people, then the thought is out there that they must be doing something right. Uh, and even the opposite can be the case nowadays, that there, there is a train of thought out there that if a ministry has, has few people, uh, it's because of their fidelity to the word of God. They only have few people there because they are the chosen few, and therefore they know that they are being faithful to scripture, and therefore they are not being popular. Uh, I would argue, at least with the people who've, of this camp, of the people who uh, I've met, um, is that they're not unpopular because they're being faithful to Scripture. They're kind of unpopular because they're jerks and no one wants to be around them. Uh, but either way, uh, there's the thought that numbers bring credibility. I tend to think that our struggle is more with the former problem, that we think that having a lot of people means that the ministry is successful, um, and that, by the way, is the backdrop of this very passage uh, right, uh, right here uh, in John chapter 6. Um, and I think that this is our particular struggle um, because whenever you speak to someone about church, okay, whenever you're talking to someone about the church that you go to or the church that they go to, what is the one question that inevitably comes up? How many people go to that church? That is what kind of tells me that there's at least a modicum of uh, the idea that this is the thing that, uh, that we struggle with uh, right there. We ask that not because the uh, attending of worship is an un unimportant thing, uh, but we ask this question because we can assume at least a little bit that having a lot of people means validity. Popularity means validity. Uh, I led a Bible study in college uh, going through the book of Titus, we just uh, heard a, a fantastic sermon this morning on um, a very important uh, passage in the book of Titus. Uh, but this study that I led in college only had about three, maybe four people regularly show up in attendance. And people would oftentimes uh, uh, poke fun at that and laugh at that and stuff like that. And that's, that's okay, uh, because I would always tell them, listen, it's not about the amount of guys in the study, it's about the amount of study in the guys, okay? Quality over quantity. 
is always the rule of thumb here. It isn't ours to underestimate the validity of someone's ministry by the population alone, just as it isn't ours to overestimate it either. Well, here in our passage, we see Jesus, who is the king and the head of the church. Uh, We see Jesus, who is the one who owns the church. We see Jesus, whose bride is the church, who always only ever looks out for the good of the church whose relationship to the church, if you read in verse uh, 57, uh, is likened to the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, we see Jesus, this Jesus, losing a ton of people on account of what he says. And here we see, uh, we, we see here what we see uh, throughout history, history itself, that the same teaching that gathers... The same teaching that is able to to garner people and to gather them as a hen does uh, her chicks, uh, to use the words of Christ, those same words also drive away. Uh, Listen to how his ministry is described by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. His ministry is described as a winnowing fork that he has in his hands and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. In other words, he's going to take what is there, he's going to take what is numerous and what is visible, and he's going to detach it from what is substantial. He's going to detach it from what is invisible and what is dear to him. There's always going to be a lot more chaff uh, in the hand than there will be wheat in in the other uh, hand, although the one is going to weigh uh, a lot more. Uh, Numbers, in this sense, don't count for much in Jesus' economy, but we know that he, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, speaks of a multitude of people uh, whom no one can number. So in this sense, yes, numbers don't count for much, although he does and will have those uh, at the end of the age, but it doesn't count in this sense for much in Jesus' economy. What does that mean for the believers, though? We who are in Christ recognize something about Jesus. We recognize that we have a need for him. Uh, because he, as Peter had confessed, and we confessed uh, just a moment ago, uh, he has the wonderful words of life. He has the words of eternal life. So if we lose him, we lose our only access to eternal life. There's a need that we have for him that's imperative that our lives be hidden with Christ in God, uh, to use the words of Colossians 3. And so we'll be looking at this passage this evening uh, with this theme that's in view, that's printed in your bulletin, that holding fast to Jesus is essential even when it is popular to abandon him. Holding fast to to Jesus is essential even when it is popular to abandon him. And we're going to look at this with uh, uh, this passage with these two uh, points in mind, that these words are hard words for the crowd, but these words are also words of eternal life for the twelve. And so we're going to be considering this first point. When we think of the hard words for the crowd, we come to verse 60, which says that when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And now I think it's important that we know that there's a difference between disciples and disciples, if I haven't confused you enough. Uh, Here, the word disciples, it's regularly used around 63 or so times throughout the Gospel of John. 
Here the word disciples uh, doesn't necessarily mean those who will follow Jesus until the end because what do they do in this, uh, this passage? It's common for rabbis uh, in the first century to have uh, disciples. As a matter of fact, one of them has, uh, is said to have had about 12,000 of them or so. Uh, so it's common uh, that, uh, that these uh, rabbis, whom Jesus is known as a rabbi, would have disciples, even numerous disciples, uh, that follow their uh, master, uh, so quote-unquote, uh, at some level. Well, here is the tipping point of these quote-unquote disciples uh, that, that are here in verse 60 and following. And they ask a question, they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Uh, this question here uh, is one for just about the entire chapter. There's plenty of things that were very hard for uh, these uh, followers, these disciples, uh, to absorb. Uh, Number one, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, Thinking of of these people here, that would be very hard to absorb uh, in their life and setting. Number two, that he is the exclusive conduit through which eternal life is given. Uh, There's plenty of other hard sayings that uh, uh, can persist beside these other hard sayings, but the hard saying that is perhaps most clearly in view here is what Jesus said about eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. Uh, A hard saying indeed. We focused a sermon on that very phrase uh, about eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood, and we saw that this refers uh, not uh, specifically and exclusively to the Lord's Supper, but to union with Christ through the whole of the Christian life, part of which is receiving of the Lord's Supper. It refers to union with Christ in the entirety of the Christian life, uh, but this isn't the understanding of the crowd here, is it? It's not the understanding of the crowd here. They understand him purely in physical terms. And so when they understand him purely and only and exclusively in physical terms, even though I think that they knew that there is something underneath the words uh, that, that are their prima facie upon the face of, even though they knew that there was a deeper metaphorical meaning, they're repulsed by the idea uh, of what Jesus, of what they think that Jesus is talking about. They think that he's talking about cannibalism. Contrast this with Nicodemus, um, who, when Jesus uh, talks about um, uh, birth from above, uh, he uses it in, physical, uh, in, in terms of the physical analogy. It's like being born uh, again. And at, at some point, Nicodemus came around to understand. You think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, speaking of uh, uh, whoever uh, trusts in him will have uh, a wellspring of water uh, rising up from within them. She knew at some point that Jesus isn't no longer talking about uh, a well that she can draw water from. She knew at some point that he's not speaking purely and merely in physical terms, unlike the crowd here. And so verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which is an interesting question, because it could be read in a couple of different ways. Uh, This question could be understood uh, as a, a lesser to greater sort of sense, that as though Jesus is saying that whatever it is that offends them right now, Uh, That offense will be increased later when they see a crucified Messiah. Or it could be read as a reference to the fact that the offense 
when his work of redemption is all done, that offense will be taken away and dispelled at the completion of his work. Either way we read it, it almost doesn't matter because we know that the work of redemption is an offense for the unbeliever, but for the believer, it's our life. For the believer, the work of redemption that's found in Christ is the very breath that we breathe. So far be it from us to say that it is an offending thing. God has changed our hearts. He's made us to love the things that he loves, and therefore he has made us to not take offense anymore at the redeeming plan of God. We say that because since the fall, fallen man has always tried to sow the fig leaves of his own good works on our nakedness in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Every Christless religion in the world, in the history of the world, has one thing in common. You save yourself. Contrast that from what we heard this morning. Uh, that, uh, that passage in Titus chapter 3, he saved us. That is the hinge upon which that entire passage turns. He saved us. Every Christless religion in the world says, you go save yourself. And in our sinfulness, we've ingrained this idea in, into our heads. And if we hear a message that's, that's any way different from this, we think of it as an alien message. Um, uh, Pastor Ben, I'm sorry to steal your thunder, but it's, it's there now. Uh, we'd mentioned a New Age spirituality. I just heard a New Age spiritualist just this afternoon uh, basically say that, you know, through the body that we descend so that our minds can ascend or something like, uh, like that. The essence of that guy's message is you save yourself, not that he saved us. And by the way, this is the other part of the reason why the people here in this crowd here thought that what Jesus said was quote, a hard saying. Literally, it says a hard word in the Greek, because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To Jews, it is a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, uh, that, uh, that phrase, uh, stumbling block, is the exact same word as the word offense here in verse 61. The exact same word. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's, it's folly. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness from the standpoint of a sinful mind, because the sinful mind wants to work up to heaven in some way, shape, or form, when in reality, heaven has come to us in Christ. See, all the religions in the entire world will tell you that you have to activate the grace of God. Uh, All the religions of the world will tell you somehow that in some way, the flesh, that is, your abilities, uh, your desires, Your proclivities, your works are necessary to produce the benefits of the kingdom of God. Your works, the flesh, is necessary to procure for yourself eternal life, which is why Jesus says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is of no help at all. I actually appreciate that in the ESV a little bit uh, more. The flesh is of no help at all. The use of flesh here is different uh, from when Jesus is talking about his flesh up in verses 53 to 56. Here he's talking about the works that we do in the flesh, uh, the feebleness of our works that we do uh, in the flesh under the sun, uh, if, if you will. Uh, but it's Jesus who procures to us. It's Jesus by his spirit who reveals and applies and seals the things of Christ to us. It's Jesus 
who procures life for us. Jesus says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Uh, The gospel of total abandonment is an offense to those with whom you share it because it presupposes our own inadequacies. It says that we have to abandon our reliance upon ourselves and we must shift the confidence that we have upon ourselves onto Christ. It presupposes that there's something wrong with us and the only thing that's wrong with us can, can only be made right in Christ. And so it's an offense to the natural man. It's always been like that. Um, I'm sure you're thinking of times in which you've uh, shared the gospel to someone and they said something like, it's too easy. Or it's the, the, the news is too good to be true. Or something like that. They, they apprehend the grace of God that you present before them. And it's just too simple. They expect you to say, well, follow the Ten Commandments and then you can be a Christian. Or something like that. This message has always been an offense, even if it's preached uh, by the king and head of the church himself. Uh, This is admitted, uh, verse 64, and the rest of the verse, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who was going to betray him, which I think relates to Jesus' knowledge, by the way, prior to his incarnation uh, from all eternity. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, there's an abandonment of self that's in view here. There's an abandonment of self that's, that's required of everyone who would name the name of Christ. There's an abandonment of self uh, that's required from, from everybody who would follow the Lord Jesus. Abandoned from oneself to him. And this and all the other things that they misunderstood for the, for the crowd was just too difficult for them. It's just too difficult for the people here. And so verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is the outcome of the false convert right here. This is their outcome. Uh, They at first, uh, they find something convenient about Christ, or they find something uh, nice about uh, perhaps uh, confessing uh, whatever the Christian confesses at first. Uh, But then when it comes to the difficult things in Christ, even when it's their fault... When it's because of them, they want nothing to do with him. So we see how the one side of uh, Jesus' words, how they're interpreted, they're hard words to the crowd. But we're going to go on our next point now to see how those same words are understood as the words of eternal life for the twelve. So we see that in verse 67. Uh, just as he does with the crowd up in verse 61, Jesus asks a question. Uh, Verse 67, he said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Which in the original uh, is worded in such a way as to imply that the intended answer to this question would be no. It's very difficult to uh, bring into English, but the intended answer here is actually no. When Jesus asks this, uh, this question, he's not asking it uh, in order for you to feel sorry for him. He intends the answer to the 12 to be no. I can explain that later. John Calvin says that this question is there to confirm their faith, which I think is a very good reading of, uh, of this, uh, that, that Jesus asks this question to contrast what's going on with the crowd, confirming the faith of the twelve, and so he'll ask this, uh, this very question uh, like this. But Jesus asks this question to prompt an answer from the twelve 
that they are to recognize in him what the crowd fails to recognize. Uh, And Peter, representative of the twelve, he knew the assignment, and he totally delivered. Uh, Take a look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, of everything that could be said in that moment, uh, if, if anybody, if, of everything that, uh, that could possibly be said, that answer from Peter totally knocked it right out of the park. That answer was the right answer. This can be pretty much its own sermon. His answer could be its own sermon. Firstly, there's a clear proclamation of his lordship. Take a look at the, 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 the verse. When Simon Peter calls him Lord, a clear acclamation of his lordship. Secondly, in his question, there's a recognition of the exclusivity of Christ. And notice that he asks this question. Notice this question. He asks, to whom shall we go? He doesn't ask, where shall we go? Where else shall we go? Or something like that. Contrast this throughout the entire chapter with the crowd and how they take interest in Jesus as it relates to his location or his time or his circumstance. The first question that the crowd asks Jesus, when did you get here? Notice they didn't ask, how did you get here? Because then they would know that he walked on the water to, to get there. You can read this in verse 22 and following. The crowd only cares about uh, the circumstances around Jesus. Here, Peter asks a question that cuts to the heart of the exclusivity of the person of Christ. To whom shall we go? He's taking an interest in Christ as he is a person from whom there is no alternative. Brothers and sisters, never care more about the circumstances around Jesus than you do about Jesus himself. Never care more about the stuff around Jesus than you do Jesus himself. Thirdly, there's a line about Jesus' exclusive prerogatives and saying, you have the words of eternal life. There ain't no one one else who has the words of eternal life. You are the only one. You have exclusive privileges, exclusive prerogatives. You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. And then we get what their responsibilities are to him. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. Amen. Uh, Go Peter, if you you will. Uh, He recognized in Christ what the crowd failed to recognize. We can even say that Peter recognized in Christ what only the invisible realm, the invisible spiritual realm, could understand about Christ. I say this because the only other time that Jesus is referred to as the Holy One of God... Uh, is from the demons in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4 as they're forced to to declare his rank uh, really out of sheer terror, if nothing else. Contrasted to the followers who ended up turning their backs on Christ, this answer is one for the books. Uh, This is meant to stand as a statement that any true follower of Jesus could and does proclaim and they say of him as well. And the Christian church uh, throughout its history beyond this point, would certainly follow the pattern left here by Peter and the Twelve. Uh, Later on in church history, 
passages like this would become formative in the publishing of various confessions of faith that are designed to distill the essence of Christian doctrine into a sort of shorthand explanation about what the church confesses and professes until the end of the age. Uh, We have a number of them in the uh, back of our Trinity hymnals. Uh, The Trinity Psalter hymnal has a ton of them. We confess one just this morning when we receive the Lord's Supper. We confess the Nicene Creed, all from uh, the... Um, the backdrop of what Peter says here, Peter's confession uh, here. But Peter gives this confession here that distills the essence of who Jesus is and what our responsibilities are to him. Now, think of the confession itself. There's a reason why it's here, aside from it being an inspired response from the the mouth of the Apostle Peter. There's times in which the Gospel of John does something. Uh, It in some way, shape, or form, looks at the reader and challenges them. The Gospel of John does this at various times. It says things in order for the reader to stop and reflect a little bit. Think of it as the book silently reading the reader. It's looking the reader into the eyes and challenges them without expressly saying that it's challenging them And here we have one of those times. The challenge uh, that is uh, drawn from Peter's confession is very clear here. The challenge that's implied here is this. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Uh, Do you likewise believe and know, which are synonymous terms, means the same thing. Do you likewise believe and know that Jesus is solely and exclusively the one to whom you have to go, that he alone has the words of eternal life, that he is in fact the Holy One of God, or do you reject him? Do you likewise claim him, as does Peter and the Twelve, or you deny him? The multitudes reject him. There's tons of people. Look, the the passage is telling you, look, there's a bunch of people uh, filing uh, out of the the exit uh, uh, door right uh, right now. So there's a fluidity, there's a facility in leaving the things of Christ. There's a facility about following suit along with the multitudes. And in this story here, there's only about 12 who are now in the extreme minority, and even among them, there is one who the text explicitly says will betray Jesus. Uh, The time that the gospel is written, the gospel of John is written, there was a real huge temptation to abandon the things of Christ for an easier life, one without these hard words, these hard sayings. But this is here to do two things. Firstly, it's it's there to set out who Jesus is, and then it's there to tell us and to really to confront us with this question, do you likewise claim him? If you do, you have everything that you need. Uh, You, uh, though the world deride or pity, uh, you have the Holy One of God. If you don't, then you reject the Holy One of God. You relegate life in the Spirit. We know of one such person here who was a disciple, one of the twelve, who we can understand and Uh, wouldn't come as a surprise to us, perhaps made something of an outward confession. Um, There's no thing in this uh, passage that says Judas uh, crossed his fingers or anything like that, right? So in response to Jesus, uh, Peter's confession, Jesus, verse 70, uh, 
answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Notice the amount of times that the word twelve, the number twelve, is found in this passage, verses 67 through 71. It's to draw your attention, yes, to the diminishing numbers of his disciples, for sure, but it's there to convey something to us. It's to convey to us just the heart-wrenching nature of when someone makes an outward confession of Christ, and yet their heart is apart from him. It's supposed to be gut-wrenching. It's supposed to be hard for us to, to, to read that. It's to advertise the betrayal of confessing Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. As he speaks of Judas, the original language can very easily be understood that his, his betrayal portrays him not as merely a devil, but the devil. Very easy to translate it this way. And indeed, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, committed the most heinous sin that mankind has ever done in delivering the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, into the hands of men so that he would be put to death. And that's from one of his insiders. Um, We can say that this was from a member of the visible church, even. So Jesus knows this. He knows the hearts of those around him. He knows that the loss of many of his followers doesn't overthrow the redeeming plan of God. In fact, it's things like followers leaving him. It's things like Peter's confession. It's things like, uh, like Judas's betrayal uh, that are instrumental in fulfilling the redeeming plan of God. And so we see Jesus as the very one who has eternal life, who has the words of eternal life, however hard those words are. We cling to Christ because we find in him and we have in him everything that is necessary for this age and for that which is to come. So we've seen tonight that holding fast to Jesus is essential, uh, even when it is very popular and easy to abandon him. I'll leave us with a couple of notes of application as we close here. Um, Brothers and sisters, first off, know that Jesus knows you in himself. Know that Jesus knows you in himself. That is, by way of extension, just as Jesus is God and God knows all things, this Jesus knows you in himself. That is, all of your circumstances, all the days of your life, all the moments that you are ever present in this life is visibly and present before him. To him, everything that can be known about you is ever and eternally present to him, to the believer, he knows of your life in him. He knows of your, all of your temptations. He knows of your joys. He knows of your weaknesses. Uh, but keep this in mind as well. He knows of the phony followers as well. He knows those who feign faith as well. He doesn't use our actions to determine our hearts. He uses our hearts to determine our standing with him. And as he tests our hearts, this is exactly where his spirit is dispatched to our hearts. He knows who has genuine faith and he knows who has false faith. And this especially relates to us who are reformed, doesn't it? Um, We are those who have a temperament toward higher educated professionalism. Uh, We are those who have a temperament towards uh, intelligence, even though I can't say that word. We are those who have a temperament uh, toward respectability, uh, semi-elitism, right? Uh, We like it when the going is smooth, and we want to show other people that the going is smooth in our lives, right? 
there is an ease about uh, this that can feign belief by hiding behind our professionalism, in our intelligence, in our temperament toward elitism. And in that way, we abandon true faith in the Lord Jesus. So know that Jesus knows you in himself. Secondly, call for and pray for the conversion of those who are least likely to do so. Call for and pray for the conversion of those who are least likely to do so. When we see in verse 64, it says in this verse that Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. As we've said above, I think this means his knowledge that was from all eternity. He knew from all eternity who uh, did not believe in this passage quite literally. It's the opposite of what John 3 verse 16 says, uh, that God loves the world and that uh, all whosoever believes, John 3 16 actually says all the believing ones. Here, it's all the disbelieving ones. Well, we see he knows from all eternity who would not believe. He knew from all eternity about the betrayal of Judas. He knew from all eternity about the, 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 the crowd leaving him. Uh, but notice that he still lays out the gospel to them. He still calls them to take of himself as the bread of life that's given for the life of the world. He still calls them to repentance, to union with himself. He knew from the beginning all these things, and yet he still calls them and demands that they believe in him, though they are not able to do this in and of themselves. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how to square this with election, predestination, and all that. And I've read, read a bunch of stuff, but all we can say is that in Christ, we have an example of, here who's, of, of Christ who knew of their unbelief and yet still offered the gospel to them. If Jesus can do this with the crowd, if Jesus can do this with Judas Iscariot, We can do this with our family. Uh, We can do this with our friends. Uh, We can do this with our unsaved children. We can do this with our unsaved grandchildren. Uh, We can do this with uh, uh, that nephew, that niece, who is battle-hardened in the LGBTQIA plus agenda. We can still hold out the gospel to them. Why? Because we see Jesus doing this when he knew from all eternity those who would not believe and even the one who would betray him. It's not ours to pump the Holy Spirit into someone, but it is ours to be faithful with his words. So it's ours to call for and pray for the conversion of those who are least likely to do so. And thirdly, lastly, don't consider numbers and popularity as the litmus test for the reliability of a minister or a ministry. Don't consider numbers to be the litmus test for the reliability of a minister or a ministry. Numbers aren't particularly bad in themselves, but they don't determine validity. Uh, What does determine validity is their alignment, their fealty that they have to the word of God. There's a church in Houston, Texas, that's able to gather more people on most Sunday mornings in person and online than all of confessional Presbyterianism and just about the entirety of the Southern Baptist Convention combined. Uh, This church never preaches on sin. They never preach on the need for the substitutionary work of Christ. They never lead the people of God in God-centered covenantal worship. They do tell you to be a good person. Uh, They do tell you that God has whatever is best for you, uh, that that God is going to give you cool stuff, but they don't tell you about the need that you have for Christ. They don't tell you about your guilt and misery, uh, your sinfulness without him. They don't preach and pray against the public sins that our nation harbors. They give baptized life advice. Uh, 
They preach a gospel of works, but they do it with light shows. They do it with dancers. They do it with professional production-level sound and video equipment. What they offer to the world is a public relations department with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. And they're able to draw millions. I'm talking millions. They're able to garner positions of prominence in our society. They've got huge, magnificent buildings. I was in not just one of them. I was in a campus of, of a ton of them, 250 feet tall, that was made of all glass. They're able to have gigantic, magnificent building, millions of dollars on their payroll. They've got all the externals to make it look successful, but they don't have the eternal gospel to proclaim. Never let numbers deceive you. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Samuel 14, verse 6, there is nothing that hinders the Lord from saving by many or by few. So don't consider numbers and popularity the litmus test of the reliability of a minister or ministry. We have this in Christ, that he is the king and head of the church, he lost a ton of people here uh, by staying, by doing what is most natural to him, staying faithful to the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 